Good morning again. Today we continue our mini-series called Grace Stories. These are real-life snapshots of the lives of people who are sitting right next to you. And uh, as I shared last week, over the past five-plus years, we've had the privilege of hearing over 30 of our Grace Stories from our community. Um, There's a reason we kick off the fall ministry season with Grace Stories. At least we try to, and for the last five years, the Lord has provided the people with stories who are ready, who are willing to share with you. Um, But it's because we know there are a lot of visitors coming during the season. Coming out of the summer, people are trying to find a church home and wondering if maybe GRC is it. And as we get back in swing, we want to emphasize season after season something that is at the core of our gospel culture. Uh, We can describe our gospel culture in different ways, but let me try this angle this morning. We don't want to be a church that exists to make much of ourselves. We're not out to get people to say, wow, what kind of church is that? We, as GRC, long to be a church that makes much of Jesus. And so if people with whom we interact, if people who receive our ministry, if they think something of the generosity they experience or the kindness they receive or the, if they taste of the overflowing love coming from our people, our hope and our prayer is that they're much more likely to say, wow, what kind of God do they worship and serve? That his love overflows like that in such a tangible way. This morning, um, yet another grace story is going to offer an answer. It's not comprehensive. It doesn't touch on every base. But together, these grace stories tell us something about this God we worship and serve, that he is a renewing, restoring, resurrecting God who revealed himself in the person of Jesus the Son and who continues to work in the lives of his people through the power of the Holy Spirit. Last week, our new director of worship ministries, Carl Stevens, courageously started his regular presence on the stage by not playing a a guitar or or singing, but by sharing his grace story. Um, It's on the website if you weren't around last Sunday. And as I said, we have two more staff members to come. Uh, Not our plan, just the way the Lord uh, worked things out. Today, Rachel Sang is ready to share her story. She's been here at GRC far longer than I have. She and her husband James have hosted a growth group. She's been involved in women's ministry, Uh, She's been a Sunday school teacher to our children, and now she serves as our assistant director of children's ministry. You will hear from this pastor's kid who has always known Jesus, but at times has wondered if Jesus even exists. She would have lost her hold on the Lord long ago, but praise God, we worship a God who says, Rachel, I will hold you fast. Thanks, Rachel. Um, As Peter pointed out, um, I grew up surrounded by pastors. My grandfather was a pastor, as well as my uncles and my own father. I grew up in the Baptist church, sitting in the very front pew. Uh, These days, you usually find me far in the back. Um, I read the Bible, attended Sunday school, and accepted Jesus as my Savior at 12 years old. Although I didn't really know what that meant at the time, I knew who God was, or at least I thought I did. He was way up there and I was way down here. He was powerful and mighty, but not powerful enough to change the difficult circumstances in my family or in my life. 
He sent his son Jesus to die for my sins, but my heart was always plagued with guilt because I never felt good enough to deserve it. It seemed the God I thought I knew wasn't really all that great or awesome or good or worthy of my worship. Life of ministry came with a lot of hardship and instability for my family. Over the course of our lives, my father pastored at several different churches in Maryland, Virginia, South Dakota, California, and Texas. We would live one year here, six months there, two years across the country, another six months, another year elsewhere. By the time I graduated college, I lived in over a dozen different locations. I made one or two friends, only to be yanked away and start the cycle all over again in a new town with a new church for another indefinite period at the beck and call of wherever God led my father. Life was unpredictable and maybe scared, confused, and angry as a child. As I got older and my family continued to go through difficult trials financially, spiritually, emotionally, I questioned my father's decisions. I didn't trust he knew what was best. I blamed him for the upheaval in, my li- in our lives. And subconsciously, I transferred those feelings to my heavenly father. I questioned God's ways. I doubted his goodness. I didn't trust in his plan. So at 18, I claimed my independence, and I decided I would be in control of my life. I began mapping out my master plan and putting God in my back pocket just in case I needed him for something. You never know when you might need to fall back on plan B. It wasn't until college when I became involved in my Christian fellowship that I began to see how distorted my view of God was. God's character is unchanging, his love steadfast, his grace abounding. He doesn't just abruptly change his mind or do things on a whim. He works for the good of those who love him. And slowly I began confessing my anger, my bitterness, pride, and my need for control. I began surrendering to God, placing my trust in him, letting go of my own agenda for my life, and letting him take the lead. Fast forward over a decade later, and here I was married to a wonderful, godly Jersey man, raising two Jersey boys of my own. I'd given up a good job in New York City to stay home with the kids, and that period was a very difficult time for me. Whatever control I thought I had barely existed, which I think any parent can relate to when they hear hear their child say, no, I don't want to, no, again, for the umpteenth time. My boys were three, and almost two when I found out I was pregnant again. Having another baby was far from planned or expected. I was barely surviving with the two toddlers as it was, But as my husband James and I prayed about it, we came to a sense of peace, knowing this child was a part of God's plan for us and our family. We would trust him to provide what we needed. And shortly after, I miscarried. The grief that washed over me took me by surprise. This wasn't a baby we had even planned for, yet I mourned its loss deep down to my very core. I was hurt, disappointed, and afraid because I had no control or say in the matter. It triggered in me all my old fears, insecurities, and doubts as a child. And then grief turned to anger, and I lashed out at God. How dare you? How dare you tease us with this baby? A child we never asked for in the first place, and then take it away from us? How dare you yank our chains and play with our emotions like this? In my anger, I couldn't reconcile how a good loving father could allow his children to hurt and suffer in this way. 
And as I continue to see the suffering and the lives around me, it made me skeptical of God's goodness, his power, his control, his good plans. My trust had been broken, and my faith had been shaken. This crisis of faith alarmed me. The loving, gracious God I thought I knew was nothing more than a mirage. So I started pouring through the Bible with the intention of making God out for the farce that I thought he was. I looked for contradictions, for loopholes, for inconsistencies, for lies. All the while, I was still attending church, sitting right where you're sitting, looking around, how, wondering how any of us could buy this. I was also still involved in my growth group and a discipleship accountability group with four other women. When we discussed various Bible passages, I would ask them, don't you wonder if this is all just a bunch of baloney? How can we believe this is true? They would listen remind me what the Bible said about God, and then pray with and for me. On a regular daily basis, I bombarded my poor husband with all kinds of theological questions. He was always patient with me, pointing me to Jesus, and I often ended up being frustrated by his simple, steadfast faith. A year went by after losing the baby, and I still had so many questions about God, the Bible, salvation, suffering, God's sovereignty, and so few answers that satisfied I came to a crossroad where I truly thought there may be no God, no Jesus, no absolute truth, that only dust and ashes remained after all the suffering and pain people endured throughout the ages. And with that view of life, it all seemed utterly meaningless. What was the point of any of this then? I found myself in moments of desperation praying to God again and again, if you're real, help me to believe I cried out just as the father of the dead girl in Mark 9, 24 did, help my unbelief. Well, just when I thought I was done with God, he was not done with me. Here I thought I'd started to lose my grip on him, but the truth is he had me gripped tightly in the palm of his hands the entire time. He was not going to let me go. Change in my heart didn't happen overnight, but gradually, as I continued to examine the scriptures, meet with fellow believers and ask questions, explore various options in search of answers, God was at work to show me who he was and who I wasn't. I was not God of my life. I was not the one in control. But here I was, a mere human being, thinking that somehow I knew better than God did. What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him, says the psalmist in Psalm 8.4. God, the creator of the universe, loved me enough to send his son Jesus to the cross to die for my sins, to rescue me from the hell that I deserve. And yet pride had blinded me to think I was somehow wiser, smarter, kinder, and more compassionate than him. In my search for answers, I realized I wasn't. I was lost and broken. Even with all the questions and doubts, I knew that much. And I knew that I couldn't save myself. I tried that before and failed miserably. I needed a savior, and in God's good plan, he sent his son Jesus to rescue the lost and broken like me. It's often deep in the valley in our doubts and our trials that God is working to unveil our eyes and strengthen our faith. In James 1, 2 through 4, we are reminded to consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. After all that soul-searching, I still don't have all the answers. But when it comes to the fundamental truth, 
that Jesus lived the life I never could and died the death that I should have endured. To rescue a sinner like me, there is no doubt. Maybe you're struggling with doubt and unbelief now. Let me encourage you to keep coming to church. Read through the Bible, meet with other believers, cry out to God, even when you don't feel like it. God is at work, redeeming and restoring all that is broken, even in the midst of our suffering. He is planting seeds in our hearts, peeling away the layers of pain and sin that blind us from fully seeing and knowing how good, how awesome, how wise, and how worthy he truly is of our worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the courage that you have given to Rachel as she has wrestled through what to share and how to share it, what words to use, what words to avoid. I trust that your spirit has given her the wisdom and discernment to choose well, to minister well to us, to proclaim, Lord, that even in confusion, in seasons of darkness, in moments of despair, that you have never failed to be faithful. Thank you, Lord, for Rachel's testimony. Lord, use it to strengthen many, even this morning, who are in that valley of the shadow of death as she has walked through. May they trust, Lord, not that Rachel figured it out, but that they cry out, as she did, to a God who promises to make all things new. We praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. One theme I would use to describe Rachel's story is rootlessness. It probably was one of the first things that struck you uh, about her story. Her childhood lived in five different states, multiple times each, because she said she lived in over 12 different places. How can you feel like you're home if you've just barely finished decorating your home when you find out you need to pack it all up again. Lack of rootedness breeds insecurity in a young person. Do I belong? Does anyone know me well enough to call me a friend, to remember me? Do I even want to try making a friend only to say goodbye again? Who am I? Rachel had no sense of roots, no external identity like uh, a normal kid who would say, I live in Teaneck, I'm 15 years old, I go to Teaneck High School, I play on the soccer team. You know, a preschooler needs to learn where he lives, what his street address is in case he gets lost and needs to find a police officer, what his phone number is in case he needs to call home and he uh, doesn't uh, know who to contact. Can you imagine, as an older child, let alone a teen, yet again wondering what is our address again? And what's our phone number? You know, there, there weren't portable area codes and mobile phones. You could just tote with you wherever you go across the country. And perhaps even worse, how do I get home from here? And then, what does home even mean other than a place where I'm going to put my head down 
until we need to move again. Add financial strain, add the normal challenges of being uh, a teen coming of age, and it's a recipe for resentment and distrust. Who am I? You may have lived in this area all your life. You may be working in the same job you started after college. Not likely these days, but um, that, that's possible. But neither of those scenarios offers a really satisfactory answer to the question, who am I? Sometimes it's just a sense that you're going through the motions, that you're putting another black marker X over another month on the calendar sitting on your fridge. What's the point? We talked about hevel, the Hebrew word from Ecclesiastes in our summer sermon series. That means meaningless. That's how Rachel described her faith crisis. She said, I entertain the notion that there may be no God, no Jesus, no absolute truth. It all seemed utterly meaningless. Hevel. Who am I? It's a question of identity. Some people search for an answer to that identity uh, by being a rebel, by trying to break the mold of expectations. Other people search for an answer to that question of identity by chasing after accomplishment and success and fame and pleasure and sometimes addictions. But the only answer, however tempting these false answers may appear in the moment, the only true answer to that question of identity can come from the person, the one who created you in His image to reflect something glorious of His identity. Here's just one answer from Scripture. In his first letter, the Apostle Peter is um, describing Jesus as the cornerstone. A cornerstone isn't just foundation that provides support to whatever is built on top of it. A, a cornerstone gives you the orientation for everything that is going to be built on top. It's true north, if you will, in terms of a building structure. It determines everything that happens after it. And um, some people are rejecting Jesus as the true cornerstone, but Peter says this to those believers, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a God's special possession that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. By the way, that's what Rachel just did. God called her out of darkness into His wonderful light, and now she is declaring the praises of this God. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. If you are a follower of Christ, this is your identity. This is who you are. This is His answer to that depth of your soul-aching question. You are God's special possession. You are a holy people. Holy doesn't mean you have it all figured out. Holy doesn't mean you're, you're perfect and blameless. Holy means you are set apart for a special purpose. You're distinct. You're not like everyone else, not because you figured out how to be special, but because God declares you to be special if you believe in this Jesus. This is who the Creator God made you to be, not only originally in creation, but now much more so in recreation through salvation. This is why the idea and the practice of adoption are so central to 
the, the gospel itself. You were orphaned. This is our narrative. You, are, you were orphaned in your sin, but God the Father called you to Himself and gave you a name when you had no name, and gave you a family when you had no family, gave you a home when you had no home. He calls you son or daughter and promises one day to bring you home to be with Him. How do we access all that blessing? One of the temptations, uh, our, our natural instinct is to think that we need to be good enough to earn it, to deserve it. But here's the vicious cycle of mere religion, of human efforts to please God, to earn something back from Him. Rachel said she never felt good enough to deserve salvation. She was plagued with guilt. And here's the cycle. That fed her sense at the same time that the God she knew really wasn't all that great or awesome or good enough to deserve her worship. So she wasn't good enough for God, and God wasn't good enough for her. That might sound surprising, but that vicious cycle is exactly what happens when we engage in mere religion, when we think it's up to us to please God, to figure this out. It makes sense because at that moment in her growth, Rachel had an immature understanding of the gospel. And when you don't see God for who He truly is, then you cannot grasp what He's done through God the Son, Jesus, and you end up with a distorted view of self and everything around you in the world. Uh, Imagine if you're playing baseball and you hit the ball and you run to the left to run clockwise around the bases. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. It doesn't matter how much of a competitor you are or how badly you want to win. You're going the wrong way. You've got the foundation wrong. Your perspective is distorted. You go to first base first, not third base. And when your distorted view is the reality, chaos is always going to follow. There's no way to avoid it. Rachel told us that it wasn't until she got to college that she began to realize how distorted her view of God really was. It was a game changer. In a sense, thinking, I've been heading south when I need to head north. I've been going the wrong way. That's why I'm so lost. I've been thinking about God so wrongly. My foundation needs to be renewed. But this wasn't just a mental shift of facts, of awareness. This had to involve confession and repentance of sin because whenever you insist that God is not that but is instead this, in contradiction to how He's revealed Himself in Scripture, in contradiction to how He has actually said He is, when you say anything along those lines, you're telling Him He's not good. You're telling God He doesn't know enough He doesn't have enough perspective. He's not who he claims to be. And so coming to a place and a time when you can actually see spiritual truth always involves turning away from, the Bible calls that repentance, always involves turning away from your wrong attitudes and beliefs, which are sin. We find that in verse 10 of our passage. Peter uses the familiar language of the prophet Hosea. Hosea prophesied at a time when the people of Israel were being disciplined for their spiritual adultery through their 
false worship of other gods. And even in the midst of that ugliness, that rejection of God's faithfulness, God graciously promised to restore His people to relationship with Him. God knows we will never be good enough, we'll never be pure enough, and so mercy is required. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It doesn't say once you hadn't figured it out and you weren't cleaned up and now, now you are. There's nothing of that sort in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God pours out mercy because He knows we need it in our sinful brokenness. Who are you, believer in Jesus Christ? Some of you would say you're not. We hope you're always listening in. But if you are, who are you? What is your identity? God's answer is this. You are mine. You're my child. You belong to me. I have called you son or daughter and give you all the privilege and status that that title naturally brings now. Live in light of who you are. God never calls us to be anyone He hasn't declared us to be and therefore equipped us and empowered us to be. be. He's not asking us to sort of, you know, come up with a new identity. He says, this is your identity, and now live in light of it. Live consistently with who I've made you to be. And then a new trial tested Rachel's restored faith. Miscarriage. After a surprise pregnancy. By the way, if you have silently suffered and you have not engaged in community in your healing from your own miscarriage, can I encourage you to speak to Rachel or Hannah Lee or Kristen Martinez who shared their grace stories earlier uh, in this, this year, January. There are lots of women whom you could go to who are safe because they have experienced the pain that you've experienced. And their plea, I know, uh, echoes my plea. Don't suffer alone. But this was the new trial. And Rachel said, It triggered in me all my old fears, insecurities, and doubts as a child. Grief turned to anger, and I lashed out at God. Rachel had come to see who God really was, starting in college with this corrected perspective of who God is. In a sense, she came to fully understand and realize his identity, but she still had more to learn about her own identity, especially, as she puts it, learning who she wasn't. I was not God of my life, she said. I was not the one in control. Pride had blinded me to think I was somehow wiser, smarter, kinder, and more compassionate than God. And in that statement, describing her turnaround, she shares with you the key. It's not unique to Rachel. It's common to all the people of God. This is the same spiritual antidote that each of us needs, a clear sense of identity. I'm not God. I'm lost and broken. I am helpless. The picture of a little baby who can't possibly do anything for herself But in Christ, I have been rescued, and His death suffered for me 
becomes my victory over my worst enemy, over my worst circumstance of being banished from the presence of God. That is no longer the reality if you are in Christ. Jesus' death was experienced for you, and Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of you following in His footsteps and rising from the grave. God restored in Rachel a proper humility. But her self-identity had no foundation, no substance. It couldn't sustain her in the storm. And then God affirmed to Rachel her new gospel identity, that in Christ, she is everything. Let me close with one plea to you. One key to Rachel's faith renewal was the support of biblical community. She mentioned she, she was in a growth group with James, but at the time, she was also in a close-knit women's discipleship group. She was not alone in her suffering or in her questioning. She had spiritual family around her to sustain her, to pray for her, to be with her. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you need to get into community. I'm assuming there's a growth group table around this uh, sanctuary to visit after the service. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you need to get into community. You can't do this on your own. None of us can. Not a pastor's kid uh, who's now the director, uh, assistant director of children's ministry. Not uh, someone who is uh, so knowledgeable about the Bible they can quote chapter and verse anywhere. None of us can do this on our own. You need people around you, even if you're only um, at this stage, in your mind only. We're, we're thrilled. Even if you're just exploring these claims about Christianity for the first time and wondering if any of this is true, get into community. Some of you who uh, have been in a growth group might say, you know, it hasn't really been that helpful. Maybe you haven't been real enough. Grace stories give you the courage to take a step in that direction. Or maybe you've dabbled, but you've never committed. Your group sees you every other month. Or maybe others in your group haven't been willing to love you enough by speaking the truth about who you are and your sin, and more importantly, by speaking to you again about who God is in His salvation grace, but like a family that might be dysfunctional. Stick with it. This is where you belong, and keep working towards health. Keep loving keep forgiving, keep coming back, back to the foundation that is your identity is no longer a sinner broken and left to your own devices. Through faith in Christ, your gospel identity is now straight from 1 Peter 2, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the gospel. Let it overflow from us to one another in the church of God, the family of God, the people of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these stories. Again, we pray, cause a harvest of righteousness to come forth from these stories as brothers and sisters in Christ share and many more here, many more identify, many more say, that's my story. That's my brokenness, 
and I long to taste that healing. Lord, make it clear through our lives, through our words, through the ministry of Grace Redeemer Church, make it clear that that healing can only come through the gospel of Jesus Christ, can only come through faith in Him, and that that healing is freely offered to all. Lord, reveal Yourself so clearly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.